Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. True Crime Brewery contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Medical information is opinion based on facts of a crime and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to True Crime Brewery. I'm Jill. And I'm Dick. Barbara Weaver was raised in a strict Amish community where she learned to be caring and obedient. She knew her future husband, Eli Weaver, from childhood. They courted according to their church rules, but then after marriage, Eli didn't live up to the expectations of a devoted Amish husband. He actually left the community more than once and was repeatedly unfaithful, making life miserable for Barbara. Join us at the quiet end for The Amish Stud. In 2009, Barbara Weaver was living in a marriage with her five young children and a very callous man. But in the Amish community, divorce is virtually unheard of. As Barbara tried to hold it all together, Eli became abusive. He had several girlfriends and broke the Amish rules by using computers, cell phones, and even online dating apps. But Eli's behavior was not only hurtful and dismissive, it put a target on Barbara's back. So Dick's with us today with a beer, and I just wanted to say up front, we both have had colds, so if we sound a little congested, a little different, that's why. But we're feeling pretty good today, so we're going to do this episode, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. So what have we got for a beer, Dickie? Here I was thinking that I was sounding really good with (laughs) the, the congestion and stuff that I had that really sexy voice. Well, you do. Of course you do, but it's different. So I just wanted to explain to people why we don't sound the same. Yeah. So we're going to do a beer from Great Lakes Brewing Company in Cleveland. It's called Chill Wave. This is an imperial IPA that's about 9% alcohol by volume. Pretty nice beer. Amber colored, small white head, nice aroma of citrus fruit and some sweet malt. The taste turns out to be grapefruit, orange, some tropical fruit, and caramel. Now, this is a smooth beer, not terribly hoppy. So if you're looking for that nice hop bite, this ain't it. <laughs> but it's good. Yeah, it is. It's very refreshing. I love the uh, tropical fruit. So let's open it up. Okay. Okay. 
Okay, so come on down to the quiet end, and I know I'm going to sound like a Scrooge here, but am I the only one that thinks it's crazy that as soon as Halloween's over, everything is just Christmas, Christmas, Christmas? Like here at the bar, they've got lights and garland and even plastic candy canes. There's a wreath on the door. What's going on? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably with you as being kind of disgruntled by this. <laughs> and it's also, it seems like they forget about Thanksgiving. Yeah, I guess it's not a commercial enough holiday or something. Well, no, but I enjoy Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. It's a really nice holiday. You don't have the pressure of gifts, but you have the nice meal. So let's not jump too far ahead is all I'm saying. I know people love Christmas and Hanukkah, and that's fine. But, whoa, let's just slow down a little here. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like anything. Rush the season. Yep. Hype, hype, hype. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Okay, now we've got our uh, crabbiness out. Why don't you go ahead and start this story? We can always blame the crabbiness on the illness. Yeah, we've got (laughs) colds, so we're allowed to be cranky. So Barbara Miller grew up in a small community of Apple Creek, Ohio. She and her sister Fanny were close. The sisters and there were two brothers also. They grew up in a family who were members of the Andy Weaver Amish. Now, for those of you who don't know, like me... Like most people, I would guess. Andy Weaver, Amish, is a conservative Amish group. They have definite rules about driving, technology, electricity, and the way men and women are supposed to dress and keep their hair. The Andy Weaver is somewhere in the middle between the more progressive Old Order Amish and the super conservative Schwarzentruber Amish. Hmm. Overall, the Amish are Christians who believe in adult baptism Separation of church and state, and nonviolence. That's probably a little oversimplification, but that gets the point across. It's the basics, yeah. So Barbara and Fanny went to an Amish school until eighth grade. Then, like most Amish women, they left school to help with housework and farm chores at home. As young adults, they were expected to prepare for what was seen as their most important parts in life, and that's being a wife and a mother. So further education for women was not an option. Now the Andy Weaver Amish have a strong work ethic, and the boys are expected to help on the farm, while the girls help their mothers in the kitchen. So this can all be very romanticized, right? Like that Harrison Ford movie, Witness? But it's not all like that. It's got its bright and dark sides. Well, sure, like any community. Absolutely right. But Barbara, she was never a girl who would test her boundaries. During Roomspringa, a period of running around, Amish teenagers live in this flexible kind of area. They become more independent and they make friendships with others apart from their family. And because they aren't baptized yet, they aren't technically under the church's ordnung, the unwritten set of rules and regulations that guide everyday Amish life. Roomspringa can last from age 16 all the way into the mid-20s. And at the end, the Amish youth needs to decide to either become baptized into the church and accept the ordnung or leave the Amish faith. And there are many reasons why someone might leave that faith. Oh, sure. But the majority become baptized into the church. Right. Now, some Amish, like Barbara, don't do anything too far removed from how they were raised. Contrary to how Rumspringa is sometimes portrayed, Amish parents don't encourage their teenagers to leave home and experiment in the outside world. At the same time, however, there's supposed to be free choice in their decision to be Amish. 
So Amish parents may disapprove of their teens' behaviors, but aren't supposed to necessarily do anything to prevent forbidden behaviors. So many Amish youth enjoy Rumspringa by going to parties, trying alcohol or drugs, wearing non-traditional clothing, or even driving a car. Now, like we said, most eventually choose to remain with the Amish church, but there looks to be about 10% who leave for a variety of reasons, enjoying modern conveniences, maybe pursuing further education. Well, yeah, that's a big one because you really can't go away to college and be part of the community. Right. Especially for women, that's a big thing. And even because they identify as a member of the LBGTQ community. Well, that's a big one because I can't even imagine being transgender or gay or anything outside the Amish norms and staying in the community. It would be virtually impossible. That would be really a tough way to grow up. Sure would. For Barbara, there is never a question that she would be baptized and remain Amish. So she spent her room spring of years going to slumber parties with other girls, eating fast food, and reading romance novels. That's pretty daring stuff fast food and romance novels. (laughs) She and her friends read The Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley High books, as well as Amish and Christian romances. Barbara was a kind, shy, easygoing, and well-liked young lady. Yeah, so it seems like she just really fit into the community and didn't really see herself going outside of that at all. No, not in the least. No, which was very different from the man she would marry. So the Amish don't take photos or have their photos purposely taken. So we haven't seen any pictures of Barbara Weaver, except unfortunately a crime scene photo. Her family and friends described her as having a round, pretty face with hazel eyes, long hair that had never been cut, because that's the way they do it. But she was kind of tall at five foot eight, little taller than average. And Barbara had known Eli since they were little children. And he was known to be very outspoken and popular as a boy. When they were 18 or 19 years old, the two began to spend some time together. And Barbara wanted a mature, kind, responsible guy to be her husband. Someone who would be a good father and provide for his family. And that's what most Amish women wanted. And really, that's what most women would want. So she thought that Eli met all of her requirements and she liked him. So he courted her for quite a while. Yeah, Eli and his family were also members of the Andy Weaver group. In fact, Eli's father and one of his brothers were ministers. Some childhood peers would recall that Eli's parents were always quick to come to his defense when he was a kid, because he was a bit on the mischievous side. Eli always had the ability to talk himself out of trouble, and this would continue into his marriage. He got into trouble when he was younger for simple things, like going to the movie theater, drinking alcohol, wearing English clothes, or having a camera or phone. These common activities were frowned upon by Amish parents and the church. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And just the idea that his parents were always kind of backing up and taking his side. You hear a lot of that in these cases of criminals and murderers, that their parents really backed them up. And maybe they kind of felt like they could do no wrong. And you kind of get that idea with Eli. He thought he was charming and handsome and got away with things. And that continued well into his adulthood. Right. And, and he looked at it as, of course this should continue. 
yeah, I'm Eli, I can do whatever I want, seems to be what he was thinking. So Barbara and Eli courted according to the Amish rules for about a year, and that meant they went to Sunday evening singings together. And that's where single Amish youth will get together for supper and an evening of singing and socializing. Then they spent many hours sharing buggy rides, where they would just talk as they made their way through the scenic countryside on a horse and buggy. And they were eventually married in 1999. Their wedding day was very traditional, too. It was this long day of religious services with the exchange of vows at a neighbor's house. And after that, everyone went to Barbara's family's house, where the female relatives, neighbors, and friends had prepared two big meals for the guests. Barbara wore a homemade blue dress with a white starched cape and apron attached with straight pins. This was the traditional dress for Amish brides. So for the last time that morning, Barbara had worn a black satin cap, which is worn by single girls on formal occasions. After her wedding ceremony, she exchanged it for a white cap. So by cap, you mean the bonnet? Yes, the head covering, yep. Okay. So Eli wore a homemade dark suit and white shirt, like all Amish grooms. And after the wedding, he grew out his beard, but no mustache. You're not allowed to have a mustache. And this is the sign of a married man. Often Amish girls weren't told about sex before their wedding day, but the Amish have published information to help parents discuss sex with their teens. And also, growing up on farms does give them some insight into the basic facts of life. Amish marriages are expected to follow traditional gender roles. The husband farms or sometimes works outside the home to support his family. And the wife keeps the house, cooks and bakes, raises the children, and of course honors her husband. The Ordnung says that wives should submit to their husbands as the head of the home. But they also encourage couples to be kind to each other and make decisions together as partners, which is fine if you have two cooperative people. But if you have a husband who's abusive, it can really leave the woman in a bad position, powerless. Absolutely. So... Many Amish couples have equal say in things. So the husband might be head of the home, but most Amish women have an equal say in important decisions. Amish women may drive buggies during the week, especially if their husband works away from the home, and they are often responsible for the yard work. Okay, I guess that's empowering to drive the buggy. Um, It's something, I suppose, yeah. But then they, they might have to do the yard work in addition to all their other work at home. They might, yes. Okay. You know, unless they live on a farm, then maybe the husband will do it all. And I think it's like anyone else. The couple can kind of work things out in a way that works, but... Yeah. Well, again, you're talking about a couple that have similar ideas and goals. Exactly. I mean, the husband, there's no getting around the fact that the husband does have the upper hand. Absolutely. Yeah. So the woman really needs to rely on a husband who's going to be fair and gracious. So divorce is considered a sin, and it is forbidden in the Amish culture. As evidence of this, the estimated divorce rate of Amish couples is 0.001%. Right, and part of that is because most Amish couples who divorce would have left the Amish church and wouldn't be members anymore. Yeah. But still, that does give you an idea of how rare it is and how difficult a decision that would be. 
This means that a woman who finds herself in an unhappy or abusive marriage could really feel trapped. Because even if she were to go to the elders and tell them about abuse, they would likely ask her what she was doing to cause the abuse and counsel her on how to change her behavior to make things better. Which, you know, in most communities, that's just ridiculous. Yes. But Barbara fully embraced Amish life, and she was really excited to have a family and wanted to live a traditional life in her community. But the problem was that Eli never did commit to this lifestyle. He was immature, he was selfish, and he did see himself as a real ladies' man. Near the end of his rumspringa, Eli was torn between Amish life and the life he could lead in the outside world. But he decided to stay in the community and married Barbara, which was probably the wrong decision. He was baptized at age 21, and they were married in 1999, and then Barbara had five children in the first seven years. She loved motherhood, but the marriage was never the way that she'd wished it could be. Eli ran an Amish store called Maysville Outfitters, and it did pretty well financially. But according to Barbara's sister Fanny, Eli wouldn't give Barbara enough money for food or even enough to care for their children. She had no access to their bank account, and he controlled her by withholding money from her. And that's something you see in a lot of abusive relationships. Yeah, well, you're marginalizing that person. Yes, and controlling them. Right. Yes. Unlike most Amish husbands who were home for dinner every night and focused on their family, Eli was hardly ever home. After 10 years of marriage, Barbara was thinking of divorce, which was something she had never imagined before in well, her wildest dreams. No, no way. She hadn't known before she married Eli that he was immature, dismissive, and totally obsessed with sex. Barbara began to find unpaid bills around the house. But when she confronted Eli, he didn't seem to care. She was shocked to learn that he owed a local printing shop $9,000 for printing and mailing a fishing magazine to his customers. People were demanding payments, and Eli just was showing absolutely no concern about this. When it was Barbara's turn to bake pies for church, Eli wouldn't even give her enough money to buy the ingredients. When she couldn't come up with the pies that the church people were expecting to eat, she felt humiliated, because it was important to her to contribute to the community, and she was upset by Eli's actions. Well, I can see that that would be humiliating, because that's a big deal, is to bring your pies to church. Well, it is. She's a homemaker, the church is a big thing, and the fact that he wouldn't even give her money for flour and sugar and whatnot, it was pretty bad. Yeah, he definitely is not husband of the year material. No. Now, his frequent absences, his refusal to feed and care for his wife and children, and then eventually his physical abuse of Barbara added up to a serious domestic violence situation. Her children had witnessed Eli grabbing and pushing her. They saw that she was unhappy, even though she tried to hide it from them. But if Barbara had reported Eli's conduct to the bishop, she would have been asked, you know, what did you do that your husband would treat you like this? So Barbara had very few choices, really. She was in a very difficult situation. And remember, in seven years, she's had five children. She's still a very young woman. She is. And those are the little kids. It's a huge responsibility. Eli was gone a lot, sometimes overnight. 
Now, he would claim to be on hunting or fishing trips, but Barbara suspected he was seeing other women, and she had good reason to be suspicious. Barbara had told her sister that Eli wanted oral sex, something Barbara didn't want to do. But Eli had become forceful with Barbara when he wanted sex and what kind of sex he wanted. He enjoyed humiliating her, making her feel inferior. Barbara told her sister that Eli didn't physically abuse their children, but she knew that he didn't want to be a father either. Well, no, he wasn't very involved. Most fathers would come home and they'd have the big dinner together, help with schoolwork. He didn't do any of that. He'd just be gone, sometimes for days. So Barbara was working really hard all by herself to give her children a feeling of acceptance and security, but it couldn't have been easy. In 2006, after seven years of marriage, Barbara was a very lonely and discouraged woman. Eli left his family to live with an English woman, so Barbara and the kids had packed up and moved about 15 miles away, which was just three miles from her sister Fanny's home in Apple Creek Township. Now, after a few months, Eli returned to his family. His father bought a house and a nearby shop that they rented from him. Now, Barbara was thinking, well, got a home and a business. Maybe this is a new start for her and Eli. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way. Yeah, and you know, most of the Amish in their community were ambivalent about Eli's return. They were happy that his family would be back together, of course, but they didn't necessarily want him to be their neighbor either. Doesn't seem like Eli was very well liked in the community. No. So it was about that time when they'd gotten back together that Barbara asked Fanny if she could take her five children for a while so that she and Eli could have some time alone and sort things out. And although Fanny had her own family, she agreed. She readily agreed. But Eli never did take that time without the children at home to focus on Barbara or his marriage. Eli had been running Maysville Outfitters store soon after his return. But this gave him even more opportunities to mingle with people from outside of the Amish community. Someone gave him a cell phone so he was able to go into internet chat rooms and find women to proposition. And with the phone, he was able to meet women who, unlike his wife Barbara, would give him the kind of sex he wanted. So does this Amish community have internet? No, most people don't. So how is he doing this? Well, if you have a phone, all you need is a wireless connection to go on the internet. You don't need to have Wi-Fi. You could go online with your data on your phone, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I forgot about that. That's okay. And Eli repeatedly hurt Barbara. He left her twice. And this is by 10 years or so into their marriage. He had left her twice and went to live in the world outside the community. Now, whenever Eli did leave, Barbara knew that he was hooking up with other women. Then when he'd come back, he'd beg her forgiveness, and he'd tell Barbara that he'd never, ever hurt her again. Well, and remember, the church elders would want her to take him back because they're all for keeping a family together. So there's pressure not just from him, but all around her. All around. Well, and the other thing, look at uh, the, the first time he left when he came back, his father got him a house and a, a building for his work. Yeah, his parents were definitely enabling him, but I'm sure they were doing it for what they saw as the right reasons. But we'll talk a little bit about them later on. And their response to some of his behavior was not great. And Eli was narcissistic and cruel. He told each of his lovers that she was the only one. 
Yeah, and when he'd come back to Barbara, he'd beg forgiveness, and as he'd always done before, he'd betray her, and then he'd try to intimidate her into doing more sexual things that she wasn't comfortable with. Now, some of the women that Eli was with would actually have sex with him. Some were fantasies. He would uh, text or have phone sex with them. Right, yeah. But he had a, a full stable going here. He was very active in this, and Barbara probably wasn't aware of all the women. I'm sure she wasn't. But she had found some love letters written to him by several women. So everyone in the community knew that Barbara was being mistreated, but they really couldn't know how bad it was for her. Barbara kept most of her hurt to herself because her environment allowed for little else. She didn't confide in anyone about the specifics of her husband's betrayals because it had to be very embarrassing for her. Remember, she also had five young children to think about. So no matter how bad her marriage was, she did respect her church's beliefs, and she believed she had to submit to her husband. When she would have time alone in her kitchen, Barbara would write letters to her counselor. She had started seeing a counselor in the hopes that he would help her understand her husband's feelings and save her marriage. Dean Dwayne Troyer, who was a counselor at a Christian counseling practice, that specialized in issues in the Amish and Mennonite communities, had given her some hope. Her marriage was not what she had hoped for or expected, she wrote in her letters. Her husband had repeatedly violated the most sacred beliefs of their church. She didn't know how to move forward. Now, Eli had gotten very angry with Barbara when he learned that she had started seeing a counselor. So Barbara felt that she needed to stop the sessions. But after she'd done that, she still continued to write to the counselor, sometimes even calling him from her parents' house. This had not been an easy step for Barbara, and I think it shows just how desperate she was feeling. I do, too, because I really don't think that could have been easy at all. No. She really felt like she needed help. Plus, you know, the Amish believe in modesty and humility. Talking about yourself and your needs is actually frowned upon. But Eli had left his wife and children twice to live among the English, which is almost unheard of. In 2009, Barbara wrote to her counselor that she thought he was straying again. Although Eli had been forgiven by his community, Barbara knew he hadn't changed his ways at all, and she was sure he was still having at least one affair with another woman. At one point, Eli was caught having sex with one of his girlfriends in his store, and he couldn't talk his way out of that one. He had repented to the bishop and to Barbara, and when Eli had left her the second time for the English life, he had bought himself a pickup truck, shaved his beard, and wore English clothes. But then a few months later, he said he had changed his mind, and he went through the motions again of repenting and returning to his family. Barbara, at this point, could no longer trust anything he told her. Right, so it's really a shame he didn't just leave. Obviously, he didn't want to be Amish. And I have to wonder if he was just doing that because of the financial support he got from his parents when he came back. I was thinking that. Because she wouldn't have asked for child support if he'd left the church. They don't do that sort of thing. At least not normally. Because they don't like to get involved with the law outside of their community. Yeah, but I'm thinking he's already left twice. And if he's Liking that life, why, why go back to the Amish? Yeah, he had a home there. He had a business there. He kind of had everything given to him when he was there, and he could go fishing all the time. And 
I think he really wanted to have his cake and eat it too, as they say. Yeah, and he probably came to the realization that he wouldn't have it as good in the English world as he did in the Amish world. Right, not at all. But then he seemed to resent Barbara and take it out on her a lot. Because at every opportunity, he found a way to hurt her with insults and hateful words. And no matter what she said or did, everything just seemed to be her fault. During one of their arguments, Eli bragged to her that he could have 50 girlfriends if he wanted. And while he used to deny his relationships with other women, he began to throw them in Barbara's face. He made her feel unworthy and unwanted. He told her that she was lucky that he was her husband, and when her counselor asked Barbara if she was afraid of her husband, she said no, she wasn't, but then she said that she knew he hated her and that she was afraid that maybe one of his lovers would come back and hurt her. Throughout the marriage, Barbara kept track of Eli's comings and goings. She kept a journal of when Eli came home, how long he stayed, if he had supper with the family, what excuses he used for leaving, and these excuses could range from taking his dogs to the vet, going to dog shows, going fishing, or just meeting someone. Barbara confided some things to her sister Fanny, but she hoped the counselor could offer her concrete advice. Her last letter asking the counselor for help was postmarked on May 15, 2009. The counselor wrote back to her, but he never heard from Barbara again. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so let's go to June 2nd at 3.15 a.m. Eli's friend, Steve Chupp, came to the Weaver house in his van to pick up Eli to go fishing on Lake Erie. David Yoder, who was also in the van, went up to the house and knocked on the door, but there was no answer. Yoder was confused. Eli was usually ready to go. Steve joined him at the front door, and they moved around to the back of the house, knocking on the other doors. Steve went to the door off of the back deck, which was near Eli and Barbara's bedroom. And finally, after what seemed like a pretty long time, a light came on. 
Eli came out and gave some excuse which his friends wouldn't even remember what he said. But on their way, they made a stop at Eli's store, and they stopped to pick up two more fishermen. Eli rode in the front, next to Steve, and as Steve drove, he watched Eli from the corner of his eye. He would say that Eli was very focused on his cell phone. The men then stopped at a gas station in Worcester to buy snacks and drinks for the trip, and after that they went for breakfast at a family-style restaurant in Monroeville. Now, Eli ordered a lot of food, but barely touched his plate. He took his cell phone into the men's room twice during their meal. Did you notice how much Eli ordered? Steve asked the other guys as they were looking at his uneaten food. He's kind of acting strange, don't you think? One of the other guys said, and all of the men agreed that Eli was acting strangely. Their drive was very quiet. In the front seat next to Steve, Eli pulled his jacket close to him in order to cover his cell phone. Steve asked him what he was looking at, and Eli just shrugged. Yeah, so Steve was a Mennonite, and he had urged Eli to get a cell phone. Steve ran an auction business which was very successful, called Steve Chup Auctions. Eli was running a business too, so Steve believed he needed a cell phone. But then Eli had admitted to him that he already had one. Eli had told Steve that he couldn't have his number unless he promised only to text him and not call. As someone who was formerly Amish, Steve understood this because phones were forbidden, but answering a text could be done quietly on the sly. Although Eli's store was small, Steve wanted to get him into the trade shows and the auctions. So the men arrived at Lake Erie at about 6 a.m. They met with Dan and Tammy Murphy, the owners of Not Lost Charters. The men had paid $100 each to go out with the Murphys on their charter boat. And as they set out on the water, Eli behaved oddly. And this didn't go unnoticed. Everyone noticed it. At one point, Eli asked the others if they'd seen his tackle box when he was actually holding on to it. So he was definitely distracted by something. Yeah, something was diverting his attention. Yeah. So after a couple of hours of fishing, Steve's phone rang. And this was Furman Yoder with very bad news. Furman and his wife Linda were Barbara and Eli Weaver's closest neighbors. And Furman asked to speak to Eli, so Steve handed the phone to him. During the late night hours of June 1st, 2009, day before, there was rain and thunder outside of the Weaver house. Some of the children in Eli and Barbara's house came out of their upstairs bedroom and moved downstairs to sleep away from the sounds of the storm and to be closer to their mother's bedroom on the main floor. The only light came from a gas lantern. Barbara, still young and pretty as a mother of five, held and rocked her youngest child to sleep. Yeah, that night there was a blended group of children sleeping at the Weavers. Four of Barbara's children and two of their cousins were settling in after a long day of playing together. The two cousins had come to the Weavers and one of Barbara's sons had stayed at her sister's house. Eli, as usual, had not been there. None of the children would recall seeing much of him at all in the past couple of weeks. So sometime very early in the morning of June 2nd, Eli came home and carried three of his young children upstairs to their beds. He had just a couple of hours before he needed to leave for his fishing trip to Lake Erie. In bed that night, Barbara's oldest son heard the shower run in the bathroom before he fell asleep, and soon after, he woke up to a boom of thunder or at least he thought that's what the boom was. He'd rolled over and fell back to sleep, and later he would replay that sound over and over in his head, 
trying to identify what exactly it was that he had heard. So the children began to get up around 8 a.m., and this was late for them. Barbara normally woke up early and wrote in her journal and then got them up. But when the girls woke up in their upstairs bedroom, the house was all quiet. One of the cousins got up and began to help with the children. Still in her nightgown, she walked toward the sound of a child crying in her Aunt Barbara's room. When she opened the bedroom door, she knew that something was wrong right away. Her sister and two of her cousins were clinging to Barbara's bedspread. But Barbara was oddly still, and the bedding was spattered with red. It was blood. The children stood at the bed, some began to cry and scream, while others just stood there in shock. So these young children were tugging and pulling at Barbara. One of them even tried to open her eyes. They begged her to wake up. Someone pulled back the comforter, exposing a wound in their mother's chest. Now there was no phone in the house to call for an ambulance. So the eldest boy got dressed and ran across the road to the home of Linda and Furman Yoder. That morning, June 2nd, Fanny had set out from her house in a buggy with the children. They were planning to spend the day at the Weaver house, so they stopped at a store to buy some things for lunch. And as they were there, an ambulance sped by them with its sirens roaring, and this gave Fanny an immediate bad feeling. As she entered the driveway, a neighbor stopped her and told her that they had found Barbara dead in her bed that morning. Someone had shot her. She pulled the buggy into the barn of a nearby farm and learned that the children had been taken to a neighbor's house, so she went to join them. Then later that day, and several times over the next few weeks, investigators questioned Fanny about her sister's marriage. She told them that Eli had been unfaithful many times and that Barbara thought he was in the process of having another affair. She said that her sister's life had not been easy but she had tried to make the best of things. Eli wasn't willing to go to counseling, and he was living a fast-paced life on his own, with his shop, hunting, and fishing. I guess womanizing, too. Is that in there? I think that's implied in that, right? He did like to hunt and fish, and he had his shop, but flirting with women and going to see women was a big part of it. You bet. Fanny also told the detectives that Eli had been physically abusive to her sister, by shoving and grabbing her, and that he could also get rough with her during sex. He was also very verbally abusive to her. According to Eli, all of his problems were Barbara's fault. And the morning of Barbara's death was filled with confusion and grief. When detectives and the coroner arrived at the scene, Fanny tried to protect the children. Within one day of the murder, Fanny had told the detectives that she thought Eli had killed her sister. Fanny mentioned his friendship with a neighbor who sometimes worked in a store. She said that she thought it unusual that the woman, who was married to another man, had gone fishing with Eli and some of the other men. Yeah, but there was another woman who Fanny wanted the police to know about, too. And that was Eli's driver, Barb Raber. Yeah, that's an important one. Yes. So when Barbara's son showed up at Linda Yoder's door on the morning of June 2nd, Linda put on her shoes and walked with him to the Weaver house. Linda and Furman Yoder were their closest neighbors geographically, but they really didn't like Eli. English women hung around his store and they disapproved. The Yoders also knew that he neglected his wife and his children, so Furman was not friends with Eli. But Linda sometimes worked for Eli in the store. In fact, she'd actually worked the day before when he had left at 1 p.m. to go fishing. 
and his friend, the taxi lady as they called her, Barb Raber, had picked up Eli and two other men and driven them to the Berlin Reservoir and back for fishing. So as Linda approached the Weaver house that morning, she saw that some of the Weaver children were already outside. Inside, Barbara's bedroom door was closed. So not sure what to expect, she called out Barbara's name. And when there was no answer, she opened the door and stepped in. The first thing that she noticed was that Barbara's lips were blue, and as she moved closer, she saw the blood on her comforter. Linda pulled it back and saw Barbara's bloody chest. So she replaced the blanket and ran to another neighbor's house where they had a phone so she could call for help. Furman gathered up the children and brought them all back to the house before he called for Eli. So first responders pronounced Barbara dead at 9.30 in the morning. Linda told them that the last time she had seen Barbara Weaver alive was at 8 o'clock the night before, and that's when Linda had closed up Eli's shop. She had looked over across the yard, and she had seen Barbara on her porch, and she had not heard a gunshot during the night. Furman told the sheriff's deputies that he had arrived home from his job at a mill around 11 o'clock. He'd looked over at the Weaver house, thought it was a bit unusual that the lights were on so late, but he just assumed that Eli had been getting ready for his fishing trip the next morning. So when detectives searched Eli's outbuildings, they found a small caliber rifle and a large gauge shotgun. One was too small and the other was too big to make the wound that had killed Barbara. While searching Eli's shop, though, they found two 410-gauge shotguns, the right size that could have caused the wound. One shell was missing from a box of shells that still had a price on it, too. When the children and the neighbors were questioned, everybody was asking where Eli was. When Furman Yoder called to give Eli the bad news, Eli didn't want to speak with him. Furman told him that he needed to come home, that his wife was unresponsive, and that he had called for an ambulance. Then Eli had said, here, I'll hand the phone over to somebody else. And he did. So Furman then gave the news to Eli's friend. Furman told Steve Chupp that Eli's wife was dead. And Steve said they'd be home as soon as possible. Now Barbara's murder was the first in an Amish community for the paramedics and the deputies who were called to the Weaver's house in Apple Creek that morning. Crimes are really rare among the Amish. Because the population and services in the townships are sparse, it took three counties to investigate the case. Wayne County Coroner Dr. Amy Joliffe arrived at the murder scene to determine the time of death. Summit County's Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Lisa Kohler conducted the autopsy. Dr. Joliffe estimated Barbara's time of death as 2 o'clock in the morning, but gave a range from midnight to five. Cause of death was a gunshot wound to the chest, and her death was ruled a homicide. It was very disturbing that she had been murdered with several young children in the house. Detectives took items from the coroner to be kept as evidence, including nail clippings, hair samples, fingerprints, DNA evidence, and gunshot pellets. Yes, so Mark Weaver, no relation, lived across the road from Barbara and Eli. He and Eli often went hunting and fishing together. The day before Barbara was found shot to death, he had been fishing on Berlin Reservoir with Eli and some other men. Barb Raber, a Mennonite woman who provided taxi service for Eli, had driven them. Barbara was about 10 years older than Eli, and she was also married and the mother of three. But she did seem to have some kind of hold over Eli. 
and vice versa. He had once worked for Barb's husband, Ed, in his construction business. Like many people, Mark noticed that Eli and Barb would look out for any opportunity to be alone. Mark was one of the few people in Eli's life who didn't know that Eli had resumed a long-term affair with Barb. There was a lot Mark didn't know about Eli, but he knew that the taxi lady and Eli acted strangely on June 1st. Eli and Barb were talking about something serious, he recalled. They were whispering and being secretive, like they had something to hide. Yeah, Mark called them, and then Steve received a call from a detective who told him to drive directly to the Justice Center in Worcester. So Steve agreed to do that. But the Dodge Caravan that Steve was driving was running out of gas, so he stopped at a gas station in Ashland. Eli immediately jumped out at the gas station and went towards the men's room. And when Steve looked over at him, he saw that Eli was texting with someone. By the time they got to the Justice Center, the men had agreed that they would go inside with Eli. Steve and the others sat waiting, unsure of exactly what they were waiting for. Would Eli rejoin them and would they take him home? While they waited, Mark called again to tell Steve that the deputies on the scene were saying that Barbara had been murdered. The fishing buddies immediately realized that Eli was going to be a suspect. A detective walked up to the men then and told them that Barbara's death was a homicide and that they were doing an investigation. He said that Eli would be there for a few hours more and that Steve could stay, but he told the other guys to leave. Only a few hours had passed since the police had been called to the scene of Barbara's murder and heard all about Eli's infidelities. It seemed like he had a motive to want her dead, so he was read his Miranda rights. Eli didn't look to them like a ladies' man. He was unkept and he had a scraggly beard. He definitely seemed oddly void of any emotion when they told him that his wife was dead, and the following was written in their report. It should be noted during the interview with Eli Weaver that he was found to show very little emotion for someone who learned about losing their wife that morning. When confronted with involvement or knowledge of his wife's death, he stated a number of times he understood why we would believe he was involved. Eli also displayed weak denials and had a casual attitude throughout the interview. When they asked Eli to go over the timeline of what he had been doing over the last two days. On Monday, he said he had gone fishing at Berlin Reservoir between 2 and 3 in the afternoon, and he had returned between 11 and 11.30. Barb Raber had driven him and his friend Mark. When he got back home, Eli did some chores, including feeding deer and putting a horse in a stall. He spoke to his wife, who was in bed, then he showered and went to sleep. He overslept and was awakened by Steve Chupp and David Yoder about 3.15 in the morning. He told detectives that none of the children were awake when he left. He had left the house through the basement door, and he didn't remember whether he had locked it or not. The detective asked if he and Barbara had argued that morning. Eli denied that. He told them his last conversation with Barbara was as he was getting dressed. He said Barbara had gotten out of bed to help him find his clothes. She asked if he had caught any fish Monday and if they'd had fun. The last time he saw his wife, he said, she was walking or standing near the bedroom. The detectives asked about his marriage, and he said that they were working to make it better. Yes, yeah, so when they asked Eli about his extramarital affairs, he did admit to having an affair with a woman named Sherry. 
He claimed to have confessed to the affair to Barbara, but only because he'd been caught with Sherry. He said that Barbara had forgiven him, though, and with further questioning, he did admit to another affair, with Barb Raber, his driver. When he'd returned to his family and repented, the bishops had warned him not to see Barb, but he admitted that he did it anyway. They had sex several times in January at his house, he admitted. He denied any other affairs and denied any knowledge or involvement in his wife's death. Eli had his hands tested for gun residue, and he agreed to giving his clothes over for lab testing. So one detective stayed with Eli while another went into another room to question Steve Chupp. Steve said he'd arrived at Eli's house just after 3 a.m., but that Eli wasn't up. It took Steve and another guy, Dave Yoder, both pounding on a door of the house to wake him up. Then finally a light went on, and a few minutes later, Eli came outside. He said they made a stop at Eli's store to get a fishing license for one of the men, and then the group had continued on. Steve told detectives that Eli had been acting strange all morning. They stopped for breakfast, and Eli ordered a large meal, but hardly ate anything. Then he had disappeared into the men's room for a long time. Steve felt like he was making a secret phone call. Later in the morning, Steve saw Eli searching for his tackle box, but it was already in his hand. Also, Eli had forgotten to bring a reel for one of the other people on the charter. To Steve, Eli was distracted. This wasn't like him. They'd arrived at Not Lost Charters about 80 miles north of Worcester at about 6 a.m., the usual eight-hour-long fishing trip was then interrupted by the phone call from Furman Yoder, and on the drive back, when he told Eli that the police had called and that they were supposed to go directly to the Justice Center, Eli didn't even question why they were supposed to do that. So Eli's children were at their aunt and uncle's house. The detectives drove Eli to his parents' house in Millersburg. They told him that they would pick him up the next day to take a polygraph, and Eli agreed. They asked him if there was a phone number where they could reach him in the meantime, but Eli claimed not to have a phone. Of course, they would learn that he did have a phone. Someone gave the detectives Eli's cell phone number. Investigators contacted Verizon Wireless to request a preservation notice, which saves texts sent to and from a phone. Then they met with the assistant DA to get a search warrant to send out to Verizon. Mark Weaver was just too upset to stay at work that day. He joined his family and watched dozens of law enforcement vehicles driving back and forth to Eli's house. Almost everyone had heard by that afternoon that an Amish woman had been killed while lying in her bed. Some of the calls Mark received were strange ones from Barb. She was asking him questions that he felt she shouldn't have known to ask, like, are they blaming Eli? Was it a shooting? Do they have any other suspects? That's kind of a giveaway, don't you think? Yeah, she wasn't the brightest. It was really kind of a dead giveaway. So Mark spoke to her just once before he stopped answering her texts and calls. That evening, Mark and his father sat on the porch talking. Mark wasn't suspicious of Eli because he wasn't home when Barbara was killed. He had been fishing. Well, at least that's what they thought. They thought that she'd been killed while he was away. Right. But he told his father about Barb Raber's calls and texts. And to him, she was acting very suspiciously. Well, everybody was already pretty suspicious that the two were doing something. Mm-hmm. So just like Mark, Steve was getting many phone calls. He stopped answering the ones from Eli because they were all just the same. 
He'd say things like, Steve, this is Eli, call me, I've got to talk to you, over and over again. But a little while later, Steve got a call from an unknown number. It was Eli, who had a new phone number now. I've got to ask you, he said, when you woke me up, did you see my wife? Steve said he had not seen Barbara, and then Eli hung up, so that was really weird. Mm-hmm. Then, the day after the murder, Steve and the other members of his fishing group met for breakfast. On their way, they passed Barb Raber driving Eli somewhere in her Ford Explorer. And that same day, investigators contacted Barb Raber and asked her to come in for an interview. And the first thing she said to them was to ask if she was a suspect. So she's looking very suspicious. Yes, she is. So they agreed to meet with Barb in the parking lot at a medical center north of where Barb, her husband, Ed, and their three sons lived. Barb looked older than her age, which was 39. She was pretty skinny with shoulder-length brown and gray hair, and she wore thick glasses. She told her life story to the detective who interviewed her. She was adopted when she was six months old and was New Order Amish until she was 22. She and Ed had started attending a Mennonite church together, and they stayed on there after their children were born. So now she called herself a conservative Mennonite. So Barbara had a tragic history in her adopted family, which must have had some effect on her in some way. Her adoptive parents, Katie and Menno Miller, were Amish. They wanted to have a large family. So Katie gave birth to a son in February 1959, Michael Allen Miller. He weighed over seven pounds and appeared to be healthy. But Katie told people that she thought something was wrong with the baby. She wondered if he was developmentally disabled. And after a few months, it was clear to Katie that something was terribly wrong with Michael. At five months, he couldn't hold his head up. That's certainly a red flag. When she tried to get him to respond to her with her voice or a toy, he didn't react at all. The Millers went to a doctor who told him that Michael was slow. Then another doctor blamed his diet for his delayed development. Also, a chiropractor told Katie that he was mentally retarded. Now, why in the world would a chiropractor tell them that? That's just weird to me. Don't get me started. I know, but that would be like a neurologist or at least a pediatrician, I would think. Pediatric neurologist, something like that, right? Yeah, well, I, you could look at that, I think, in a couple different ways. It's apparent that his development's delayed, so you could say he's mentally retarded. But that's a loaded thing to say. It certainly is, and it's kind of a useless term. But, yes, yes. But it's obvious that he's delayed. Mm-hmm. Then at seven months of age, Michael became ill with spinal meningitis. He survived this, but afterwards had periods of constant crying, and he'd pull his hair out of his head, hit his head against the crib, and he would do that until he was bleeding. Now, Michael had special needs, but his parents still gave him plenty of love. Yeah, so this is just such a tragic story. It's really unbelievable. The next year, the couple had a second son, Timothy Ray, and when he was three weeks old, doctors said that he was developmentally delayed too. Now, the parents were devastated. Their Amish community did a lot to help them, though, doing babysitting, bringing them meals, and even helping to pay some of their medical bills. But advanced genetic testing was still over a decade away, and the doctors they saw knew very little about inherited and chromosomal abnormalities. 
So Katie and Menno had no warning about having other children or the probability of a genetic problem that they would be passing on to their offspring. So in August of 1961, Katie gave birth to a third little boy, Rudy J. Doctors said they couldn't see anything wrong, but the baby was very fussy and colicky, and when he was six weeks old, his body began to swell. Doctors said it was serious, and he was taken to a hospital in Columbus. Your baby has a very serious disease, a doctor told them, but gave them no diagnosis, and several weeks after that, Rudy died. And both Michael and Timothy were sick a lot, and they were both prone to pneumonias. Certain foods also didn't agree with them. When he was nearly three years old, Michael began to have swelling on the tops of his feet and around his eyes. Michael died when he was five. Not long after that, Timothy got weaker. He was taken to Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore in October 1964. Again, the specialists were perplexed and no diagnosis was arrived at. Now, all the symptoms seemed to point to PKU, or phenylketonuria. And that's a condition in which the body can't break down an amino acid called phenylalanine. But without treatment, phenylalanine builds up in the blood and causes health problems, including developmental delay, seizures, rashes on the skin, and swelling of body parts. So PKU is inherited. Now, Katie believed that the doctors at Hopkins had tested for PKU, and the boys didn't have it. I think in uh, the mid-60s mm-hmm. at Johns Hopkins, he was tested for PKU. Okay. Had to have been. But there's an awful lot of uh, other disorders that it could be. So the, the Hopkins doctors told her that her sons had a new sickness. No one said anything about not having any more kids in the hopes that the next one would be normal. Katie and her husband felt that the next child would be healthy. Now, they had a fourth boy born in August 1965, Matthew. Within weeks, he was having convulsions. Timothy's conditions getting worse. Rudy died in 1961 when he was six weeks old. Michael was five years old when he died in 1964. Timothy died in 1967 when he was seven. And their last child, Matthew, died in 1969 when he was four. So this is just so much tragedy. I don't know how they managed. I don't either. It's four four little boys. Yes. Just dying off. It's horrible. So today, the boys would have had newborn screening that would probably find a rare genetic condition, which is termed an inborn error of metabolism. The original test screening was the Guthrie test, which was for PKU. And that was in the early mid-60s, where they figured out how to look for that. These days, if you have a newborn, you're probably going to have 30 to 40 different diseases screened for. And you'll probably be able to find a diagnosis. Now, these inborn errors encompass generally enzyme defects. So the, the metabolic pathway is interrupted. As we said in PKU, you're lacking an enzyme that metabolizes phenylalanine, so you get a buildup of that. There's other diseases of fatty acids, of carbohydrates, of other proteins, the urea cycle having to do with the liver, all sorts of stuff. 
And I'm thinking, just because there's, there's four males that all had the same, probably the same disease, and they all had swelling and stuff. So my guess would be a urea cycle disorder, if I had to make a guess. And that, that involves liver function and, and so on. So is that something that may have been able to be managed nowadays if they had it? Yeah. So they probably wouldn't have had the cognitive impairment and probably wouldn't have died as children. Yeah, if they had been able to make a diagnosis and treat, like PKU, those children are placed on a low-protein diet so they don't get a buildup of the phenylalanine. And if you adhere to the diet, you're going to have a child who's normal. And we used to tell people once you got to five, six, seven, eight years of age, uh, you could come off the diet because the, the brain had done most of its growth by that point. In fact, the recommendation is you should stay on the diet forever. Because otherwise, if, if you come off, of, you're going to lose a few IQ points per year. And those are precious, you know. <laughs> I feel like I lose a few a year now. So you, you don't want to be withdrawing treatment. No, no. Uh, when it's not going to be good for you. Sure. That's the long way around the barn to talk about metabolic errors. Right. So what these people went through, they would go ahead and adopt some girls, and Barb Raper would be one of those girls. But you just have to wonder what kind of household this would be. What would the anxiety level be? What was the traumatic damage to these parents? It's impossible for us to say, but there had to be something in that family as a result of that. Yeah. Right? The way they raised the adopted children. I wonder if they adopted a baby girl intentionally because it had four sons that had died. Oh, I definitely think so. That's my belief, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, they had adopted a baby girl before their son Matthew died. And during the next few years, they adopted two more. Barb was the middle one. Her adoptive mother kept a nice home for them, but 
Like I said, it just seems like that tragedy had to hang over that family, like a black cloud in some way. By all accounts, the oldest girl was like an answer to their prayers because she was healthy and caring and just everything they'd always wanted. But then something was off with the other two that they adopted right from the start. The youngest one got into fights and was disobedient. And the overwhelming problem was Barb, the middle daughter, because she was just a compulsive liar. She'd just lie for the sake of lying and exaggerated just about everything. So it's really hard to say what would cause that, but I could see that maybe the parents had to distance part of them in a way because of what they'd been through or, you know, who knows? I really can't speculate. But I do think it had to have some effect on how they raised the children and how they interacted with them. Oh, it'd have to. Yeah. Now it's 2009, and Barb, who is the middle daughter, was being questioned about her involvement in a murder. Her adoptive parents stood by her. During the 15 years since she left the Amish, Barb had built a new life. Her marriage with Ed Raber, membership in the conservative Mennonite church, and three sons, whom she loved but sometimes neglected. Despite all that, Barb was a troubled woman. She'd had several extramarital affairs with local Amish men. She was depressed, anxious, and impulsive. The house was a cluttered mess. It sounds like some hoardings going on. Yes, definitely. Stacks of trash and junk filled every room, and it turned out that her relationship with Eli was as completely out of control as the rest of her life was. Well, Barb seemed especially vulnerable to outside influences. She was a good target to do Eli's dirty work. Oftentimes, they sat together in her Ford Explorer, and Eli would push Barb to help him get rid of his wife. He wanted to be free from the rules of the Amish and a wife who wouldn't submit to what he wanted sexually. Barb was in love with Eli, and she knew that getting rid of Barbara Weaver would give her more access to him. Then she could come over to his house and give him oral sex or whatever he wanted. So as they sat in the Explorer together, they often went over a list of ways that she and Eli could kill his wife Barbara. So living on a farm as she had, Eli and Barb knew that poisons were always available. Golden Malrin was an insecticide used by farmers and ranchers for its deadly effect on raccoons which seems really mean and cruel. What's wrong with a raccoon being in your yard? Anyway, okay, off the point. But some farmers would mix it with peanut butter and kill off raccoons. Golden Malrin could be used on Barbara Weaver, they thought. So while Eli thought that killing his wife with a poison could be the solution, it was possible that she'd die slowly, and he was actually in a hurry to get rid of her, he said. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want her lingering. I want her dead fast. Right, so no concern that she might suffer during that long death, just that he'd get tired of waiting. Yeah. So he'd said to Barb something like, well, maybe you could blow up the house. But when Barb asked him, well, what about your kids? Because there were five children living there as well. Eli just appeared to shrug that off. He said, well, you know, the kids will go to heaven because they're innocent. So, wow. Wow, wow, wow. So she continued to search for ways to kill Barbara. Apparently, she wasn't really, you know, gung-ho about killing five innocent children. But she started doing a lot of investigation online on ways to kill Barbara. So for over a year, Eli had shared the idea of getting rid of his wife to a few of the women he'd met online. He told them he wasn't happy in his marriage and admitted that he wanted more freedom. 
He never did mention that he had five children, and later Eli would admit talking to women about helping him kill his wife. These are hookups, right? Well, some of them went on for more than once. Some of them were I just, ongoing. I, I can't imagine. You, know, you just had sex with some woman you've met. Uh-huh. And the talk immediately turns to, how am I going to kill my wife? Yeah, he didn't seem to have much of a problem with Jeez. saying that. It's I know, it sounds really crazy. But it was Barb Raber who really took the bait when he brought this up. Eli had given Barb suggestions on how to get rid of his wife. The poisons, the blowing up the house idea, shooting her at home, and shooting turned out to be the best option in Eli and Barb's opinion. So Eli told Barb that he'd be leaving early one morning for a fishing trip, and he said he would leave the basement door unlocked. Go up to the bedroom and get it done, he said. So late that night, while her husband, Ed, was asleep on the couch, Barbara took her shotgun to the car and drove the half an hour to the Weaver house. So this was the night of June 1st. Eli, when being interviewed by detectives after Barbara's murder, said that he'd last had sex with Barb in January of 2009. But Barb then explained to investigators that their last sexual encounter had been in May, which was actually just a week or two before, if that. Barb knew of one other woman Eli had had an affair with, but she didn't know her name, and she also didn't know if Eli's wife knew about his affairs. But she said she'd learned of Barbara's death Tuesday morning, just like everyone else. The detective didn't ask her how she'd heard about the murder. He asked her if she'd talked with Eli since his wife was murdered. And not only had they talked, she said, but they had met up at the house for a few minutes. She pointed out that they had not been alone, though. So with interviews and phone records, investigators learned that Barb Raber had been really busy on the day of Barbara's murder. She had called one of her sisters to tell her that Barbara Weaver had been murdered. So this was June 2nd. Then she had texted Eli's friend, Tabitha Milton, to give her the news. At 2.46 p.m., Barb had texted Eli, and this text read, Whatever you do, don't give them your cell phone, please. Later, she sent another text to Eli, saying she planned to change their phone numbers so their calls and messages couldn't be traced. Also, she was supposed to ask a, f- ask a friend and former lover to make a call to the telephone in Eli's shanty. So that was kind of a phone that the neighborhood farmers would use because no one had one in their home. So this friend of Barb's, a former lover, was told to leave a specific message. And this man's name was David. David, a father of five, had once worked for Barb Raber's father-in-law. And Barb had been his driver, and they had been lovers. He left the Amish community in 2007 and was working as a truck driver. And on the day of Barbara Weaver's murder, he left a message, just like Barb had asked. Yeah, Eli's neighbor, Furman Yoder, heard the suspicious phone message left on the shanty phone's answering machine the next day. And he told the police about it. The message was very succinct. Eli, we got the wrong person. You can run, but not hide. This was a man's voice saying this. And this was left at 7.36 in the morning on June 3rd. But it was all a ruse. It was Eli's idea to make it appear that Barbara Weaver's murder was a mistake committed by unknown men who were actually after Eli. Verizon phone records confirmed that the call had come from David Weaver's number. 
Detectives also learned from David that he had loaned Barb a 410-gauge shotgun a few years before the murder, and she'd never returned it. Now, that's suspicious. Yeah, well... More than suspicious. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Plus, you got the phone call that's traced back to the guy's phone? Well, that's really stupid. I don't understand yeah. how he thought that was going to do any good. I mean, they're familiar with burner phones. Why didn't they use one of those? So a local woman, a 25-year-old named Dandy Heasley, contacted the police to let them know that she had had an affair with Eli, and he'd said some disturbing things to her about his wife. So Dandy told the police that her affair with Eli had begun about two years earlier. She had met Eli online through a dating site called MocoSpace. His profile was under the name Amish Stud, and he asked, who wants to do an Amish guy? Yeah, because I heard those Amish guys were really great. Well, I think it intrigued a lot of women. <laughs> he also had a picture of his naked chest there. So Dandy said that she had been to Eli's store a few times and that she had found him to be very outgoing and charismatic. She said that she had never spent the night with Eli, but they had met up and had sex a few times during the day. When this romance ended, Dandy and Eli had remained friends for about a year before his wife was murdered. Now, Dandy had known that Eli was very unhappy in his marriage, but then she saw some red flags when he started to say some really dark and disturbing things. He would talk about ways to kill someone, and he told her that if she came to his house and saw his wife out in the driveway, she should just run her over. Then he told her that he knew which mushrooms were poisonous. So Dandy actually hadn't spoken with Eli in several months at the time of his wife's death, and she agreed to cooperate with the police because she believed that he was involved in the murder. So they had her go on a computer and set up a new MocoSpace account, and she sent Eli a message asking what was going on and asked him to call her, and she gave him her new cell phone number. And it only took minutes for Eli to call her back. That was pretty remarkable. She talked to him, and he calmly said that someone had killed his wife, and she asked him for more details about what had happened, but he told her he couldn't talk and he'd call her back later. But he never contacted Dandy again, so maybe he got a little suspicious. But now, thanks to Dandy, the police had Eli's new cell phone number, so that was important. It certainly was. That would bring in a lot of information. Yeah, so the police subpoenaed Eli's phone records. He spoke with several women who he had met with his Amish stud profile. Many of the women had similar experience with Eli, talking about killing his wife. He would come right out and ask, Do you know anyone who could kill my wife? Now, whenever he was confronted by this, he would usually pretend that he's just joking. That's a pretty ha-ha joke. Well, you know, I just can't see how you would think that's funny. No. Especially after once, you know, if you keep saying things like that. Eli's cell phone wasn't in his name. He was actually on Barb Raber's friends and family plan. <laughs> My word. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and investigators found literally hundreds of texts between Eli and Barb. It was obvious that they were still romantically involved at the time of Barbara's murder. And in the weeks leading up to the murder, their texts had become very dark, suggesting ways to kill his wife and even making plans to do that. Barb had suggested putting sleeping pills in her soda and killing her with carbon monoxide. They went on to talk about poisons and feeding her a spiced cupcake with rat poison in it. 
So that's some evil shit, isn't it? Very. Yeah. So their texts on June 1st, the day before the murder, had Eli encouraging Barb to go through with killing his wife. On June 10th, Eli and Barb were arrested, and the Raber house was searched. Barb was read her Miranda rights, and she asked for an attorney. She was promised one, but at the station she agreed to talk to them alone. At first, Barb said that she had been home during the time frame when Barbara had been murdered. Then she claimed that she just wanted to frighten Barbara with the gun when it accidentally went off. But eventually she did go ahead and tell detectives all about the morning when she shot Barbara Weaver as she slept in her bed. So she would recall sneaking quietly past her sleeping husband who was on the sofa. It was very early and she knew that Eli would be leaving soon for his fishing trip. She said she felt sick but she had this compulsion to please Eli, and that overcame everything else. He was the only one that made her feel loved and special, so she got into her Explorer, and between 2.21 a.m. and 4.47 a.m., Barb and Eli texted back and forth several times. So there's no proof of what time Barb actually arrived at the Weaver house. But by 3.37 a.m., Eli was at the diner with his friends, and Barb texted to ask him where she should park. Eli texted her back, letting her know that he had left the basement door unlocked, and he also told her to take a flashlight with her. Part of Barb was hoping that Eli would tell her he loved her and that she didn't have to do it, but that's not what happened. He didn't tell Barb to turn back, and he didn't tell her how to shoot his wife. At 4.47 a.m., Eli texted her one last time, telling her, she could park behind the pine trees. Now at the Raber house, investigators took evidence, including a Verizon cell phone, a second cell phone, two Toshiba laptops, one HP Pavilion laptop, a 22 caliber Ruger rifle, a 20 gauge Remington shotgun, boxes of various cartridges, shells, magazines, and bullets. Now one of the phones Barbara had handed over to the police The other was found behind a TV in the living room. Her purse and one laptop were on the kitchen counter, and other computers were upstairs in the office and in a closet. One rifle was in a closet, and one was just sitting in a corner. But what was not found was a 410-gauge shotgun, believed to be the gun that killed Barbara Weaver. Now over 800 searches regarding how to poison a human being were found in her search history on one of those computers. So the detective spoke with Barb's husband, Ed, and decided that he was innocent and clueless. He had no idea that his wife had snuck out in the early morning hours of June 2nd. He didn't know she had a long sexual history with Eli, either. And he didn't even know that Barb had confessed to the murder until he read it in the newspaper. Yeah, clueless indeed. Well, yeah, but there were some suspicious things, too. Yeah, there's a phone call between Barb and her husband where they seem to be talking about hiding a gun. So Barb says if that guy comes out Monday night, mention nothing about that thing that was in the camper. Ed, I know. Barb, you know why. Ed, yeah, I know why. You don't have to say more. Barb, okay, if he says something, just tell him it's the one I bought. Ed, yeah. Then on a second call, they continued the conversation. Barb, do they have fingerprints? Ed, I have no idea. I touched it last when I put it in the case and put it in the other place. So detectives concluded that that thing was actually the missing murder weapon 
and the other place was wherever the murder weapon had been hidden. Yeah, it seemed that the shotgun had first been hidden in a camper, then moved to another place. Detectives went back to talk to Ed Raber. They told him that they'd been taping Barb's phone calls and were interested in those two calls that mentioned a firearm and a camper. Ed told them he used to have a camper, but it was scrapped now. It had been registered to Barb, but owned by Eli, who used it on his hunting trips. Eli had given Ed permission to dismantle the camper. Ed thought the 410 shotgun had been kept in the camper, but had been returned to David Weaver, the ex-lover who'd made that phone call. So it was unclear how much Ed actually knew, and it was unclear where that gun was. In August, just weeks before Eli's trial was to begin, his attorney approached the prosecutor's office about reaching a plea deal. So Eli agreed to plead guilty to conspiracy to commit murder, and he would testify against Barb. Eli admitted to talking to Barb about killing his wife, but he tried to say that the murder was her idea because she wanted to be with him. He said he never tried to talk her out of killing his wife because there wasn't going to be any stopping her. She just went ahead with it on her own, he said. Eli never showed any remorse or apologized for what had happened. And Barb was also offered a plea deal, but she turned it down. She pled not guilty and was ready to go ahead with the trial. She stuck with the story that she had decided not to kill Barbara, but just to scare her. But then the gun had gone off accidentally. So Barb's trial began that September. The prosecutor described Barb as a jealous woman who was desperate to be with Eli. Jurors were shown her text messages and her computer searches, which were very incriminating. They also called David Weaver as a witness, and he testified that Barb had asked him for a favor to leave that message on the shanty's phone so that it would look like Barbara's killer had been after Eli as the target. Barb Raber's cellmate testified for the prosecution, too. She said that Barb had told her that she'd bought a 410 gauge shotgun and that she had asked her if she knew how long fingerprints would stay on a gun. A man named Larry Miller testified that Barb had bought a 410 shotgun from his gun supply store in November of 2008. But the prosecutor's star witness was Eli Weaver, and he continued to minimize his involvement and point the finger at Barb. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Barb's defense team claimed that the state had no solid evidence against her. There were no fingerprints, no DNA, and the murder weapon hadn't even been recovered. In his closing statement, her defense attorney argued that Eli had killed Barbara himself at 2 a.m., 
and left an hour later on his fishing trip. The lack of a weapon as evidence and the fact that Barbara was shot at close range proved that the crime was personal, he said. And I can kind of see that because he wasn't ready when his buddies came to pick him up for his fishing trip, which they said was out of character. Yeah. What was his excuse? He'd overslept or something? Well, we don't even know what it was because they didn't even remember. It was something pretty lame, I guess. Right. But there is a lot of evidence against Barbara that she did it. If it weren't for that evidence, though, I could see that Eli could have done it. Well, he was involved. Well, yes, of course, he was behind it. But I'm just talking about who physically did it. actual, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which, it it seems like it had to be Barbara after her confession and the texts and everything. Well, yes. Yes. But it was done because Eli wanted it done. Yeah, it was. I mean, partly it could be because Barb wanted Eli's wife out of the way as well. Sure. But yeah, I think it was primarily Eli's idea. So the case went to the jury for deliberations after just three days of testimony. And the jury deliberated for five hours. Barb was found guilty of aggravated murder and sentenced to life in prison. Eli's plea was guilty to complicity to commit murder. He was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison and is eligible for parole in 2024. So that's really soon. Uh, Like two years, year and a half. Right. Barb is eligible for parole in 2032. Yeah, she appealed in 2010, and one of her arguments in her appeal was that the digital evidence from a laptop computer had been intercepted without getting an interception warrant before searching it. But that was just a technicality that really didn't work, and her conviction was affirmed. I wouldn't think it would work. No, it didn't. But the children involved are probably the biggest victims. Well, yeah, there's a bunch of them. Yeah, when you think about it, the lives of 10 children were irreversibly damaged by Barbara Weaver's murder. Five of Barbara and Eli's children, because they don't have any parents now. Their two cousins who were sleeping over on the night of the murder. And then, of course, Barb Raber's three sons. The two oldest Weaver children were cared for by Barbara's sister Fanny and her husband. And the three youngest moved in with other relatives. So they did have to be split up. Right. But maybe they all live in the same area and they can see each other. Hopefully that's how it happened. Then an aunt stepped in to help Ed Raber raise his three children, and they moved to a different house. After Barb was arrested, their church congregation helped the Raber family financially. Ed did not divorce Barb, and he visited her every few months after her conviction. Yeah, so it seems like he backed her up. I don't know what story she told him that he believed, but, you know, he stayed married to her and continued to visit her. Yeah, although every few months. It's not that often. No, but who knows how far away the prison is. Yeah. But yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, I'm, I would think if if you felt that strongly that your wife was not as guilty as she was sentenced to be, you'd visit her more. Yep, that could be true. So, anyway. Yeah, so there are a series of articles available on Lancaster Online about domestic abuse in Amish communities. To many people, the thought that Amish men, who are, you know, publicly kind of known for having a strong work ethic and being gentle, wouldn't abuse their spouse or their children. But there's denial, not only in the general community, but from the church leaders. And we talked a little bit about how Barbara Weaver would have to deal with that. 
Right. So no studies have been done to identify the frequency of abuse that goes on within the Amish churches. And without giving their names, some church and community members told reporters in 2004 that there's likely the same amount of abuse in Amish communities, Mennonite communities, and the general population. The difference is really just the way that the abuse is dealt with. As members of a tradition-bound culture, the victims, mostly women, would need to turn to their bishops and ministers for help. And those, of course, are Amish men or Mennonite men. And instead of listening to abused women and helping them find resources, Amish women often feel shame and are blamed for the abuse. This is because of their strict belief in the sanctity of marriage, in man's authority over women, and forgiveness. So it seems that there's some progress in some communities, but they still have a long way to go. Yeah, look at Eli. He left the Amish church and his family twice, not once, but twice. But each time was welcomed back in and given another chance. Exactly. Barbara would probably still be alive if she'd felt comfortable getting a divorce, and if she and the church had refused to take him back. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. So that's really a failure by the community, I feel. He never should have been welcomed back, because I don't think he was ever genuine. No, but you know, that's, that's tough to assess, whether you're genuine or not. But still, the guy's left. He was gone for months. It's not like he left and was back in a week. No, he'd actually started living, you know, the English life, as they say. Yeah. But one thing I remember reading about after Barbara was murdered is Eli's parents, before anyone was arrested for her murder, saying, well, who would kill her? Who would do this to Eli? As if Barbara's murder was making Eli more of a victim than she was because yeah. he was the man. Well, like she was almost like property. You know, it's a patriarchal society. It is. So that's upsetting. Anything else to add on that? I got nothing. Okay. So TCB's music was produced by Mike McClellan. And you can find out more about his work at his website. That's podcastps.com. While we're segueing into feedback, I'd also like to thank listeners for five-star reviews that have been left on Apple Podcasts and requested if you haven't done so and you would like to, we would very much appreciate a five-star review. It helps other listeners to find us. If you have comments, a case suggestion, or a beer recommendation, or all of the above, you can send us an email to truecrimebrewery at tigrabber.com or you can go to the website and click on the link to leave us a voicemail. There's also a direct link in our show notes where you can leave a voicemail. If you're interested in supporting our show and getting bonus episodes and all of the episodes without ads, please go to our website as well, tigrabber.com, and check out the subscribing options. They're reasonable and they really help us out. So it's a great way to support the show and get a little something for yourself, including a gift that we'll send to you as well. That's right. It's time for listener feedback. So we have some great feedback to share on the show. What are we going to start out with? Well, we've got a couple voicemails for today. Uh, one's from Tammy, and she's suggesting a case. We're familiar with this, too. Hi, Jill and Dick. This is Tammy from Texas. 
I have a case suggestion, but it's not the typical case that you guys normally do. I know you do murders. That's what you do. And this is not that, but I found it very interesting. It was the kidnapping of a woman named Sherry Papini from Redding, California. And this happened back in 2016, I believe. And I don't want to give too much away just in case you guys decide to do it. But there was a crime and I found it very interesting. So I wanted to mention this one to you and just see if you might be interested in doing one like that. I love you guys. Keep doing what you do. Well, thanks a lot, Tammy. Now, we recently saw 48 Hours or a Dateline about the Sherry Papini case. Yeah, it was uh, fairly recently. Yes, it was. So Sherry was 34 years old when she disappeared in November of 2016 while out jogging. She was about a mile away from her home in Redding, California. Then she reappeared three weeks later on Thanksgiving, reporting that she was freed by her captors at 4.30 that morning. And she was wearing restraints, and she seemed hysterical. She had many injuries, and this was about 150 miles away from where she was when she disappeared. So this was a pretty young blonde woman, and the case got a lot of media attention, with national law enforcement experts reporting doubts about the details of this reported abduction. So according to the Department of Justice, Sherry had made up this story. And I don't want to give it away either, Tammy, but there were some upsetting things she said, right? Didn't she blame it on Latina women? Yes. Yeah. So there was kind of a racial aspect there and a lot of betrayal towards her husband. Yeah. So it is an interesting case, and there doesn't necessarily have to be a murder for us to do the case. So I think that's a great suggestion. Yeah, well, we talked about doing that when we watched the the update. Yes. So be a good one. We've seen a couple cases like that. Yeah. One where the woman was named Quinn and her mother was yelling, Quinn! Remember that one? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was another one that was pretty fishy. So that was interesting. It was. Now we have another voicemail from Claire. Hi, Dick and Jill. It's Claire. Um, I've called before and sent you some voicemails, but I keep listening and loving your podcast, and I keep thinking of other cases I want to suggest to you guys, so I thought I'd call again. I am located in Kansas City, Missouri, and there are a lot of great Kansas City cases, and I know that I've suggested some before, but I wanted to bring up a different one that is still in Missouri, but it's more in north-central Missouri, kind of outside of Columbia. Um, And there was a Dateline episode about it, and I wondered if you guys might enjoy it as one of your Dateline rewatch episodes. But it is the murder of Ben Rennick. Um, And the Dateline episode is season 30, episode 16, um, which is called Venom. Uh, It's not Keith Morrison. I'm sorry, Jill. um, But Andrea Canning is the one that does it, and she's also great, of course. But Ben was a pretty successful and well-known snake reader, and he had a lot of venomous and large and dangerous snakes that he kept at his facility. And when he was murdered, it was attempted to be staged as if he was killed by one of his snakes, which of course was not the case. And it's an interesting case, and Dateline did a great job covering it. And it was fairly recent, I want to say in the early 2000s-ish or like the 2010s, um, that got a lot of attention kind of locally around here. So I thought you guys might like that one. For a beer suggestion, I love the Cinder Block Brewery in Kansas City, which is, you know, in the same state. But if you wanted something more local, the place where this case happened is pretty close to Herman, Missouri, which is sort of a tourist destination of like wineries and breweries. So I'm sure that there would be lots of options there for you as well. So 
wanted to throw that out there as something I think you guys would find interesting and kind of unique as a case. And keep doing what you're doing. I love your guys' podcast, and I can't wait to listen every time a new one comes in on my feed. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot, Claire. That's a great suggestion. Now, I'm thinking we watch too much true crime TV because I remember seeing that episode not too long ago as well. Yeah, this one rang some bells. And it was a good one. And of course, Andrea is wonderful. She just doesn't, you know, do it for me like Keith does. <laughs> so Ben Rennick was 29 and was shot and killed at his Montgomery County home near New Florence. So his belongings that he left behind include his world-renowned snake breeding business, Rennick Reptiles, which he was in the process of selling actually to a professional hockey player when he was killed. His wife became a suspect in his death, at least partly because she had incurred a lot of debt and it was believed that Ben was thinking of leaving her. But there is a lot, lot more to that story. Yes, there is. But we're going to stop there. Yeah, but I think that's a pretty good recommendation as well. Yeah, so he's uh, done fairly well. I I thought the snake breeding business, I know it was world-renowned, but it wasn't that much of a moneymaker for him, was it? Um, I'm not sure. I know that he was doing pretty well for a 29-year-old man. Like, he owned property, and so I think it had been doing okay. Okay. But maybe not because the wife was taking money out or something. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was embezzlement or if she was just you know, taking personal funds. I can't remember all the details. There may have been another man involved as well. I'm not sure. Well, why not? (laughs) To make it more interesting, right? Sure. Yeah. But I mean, of course, it's very sad. It would be difficult to frame a snake for a murder. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially when there's a shooting. Yeah. Well, that would do it too. (laughs) Yeah. But that's a great suggestion, Claire. And what about the beer suggestions? Oh, there's plenty of Missouri beers. I never worry about running out of beers to select. Okay. All right. Okay, so we have an email from Cindy, friend of the show, frequent case suggestion contributor. And Cindy writes, Ronald Clark O'Brien, who gave his son a cyanide-laced poisonous pixie stick that he retrieved from someone's house on Halloween 1974. I heard a shortened version of this on another podcast, and I was unfamiliar with it. So that's Cindy's suggestion. So I did look this up because it was just Halloween. So I found it really interesting. (laughs) It got your interest. Plus, it seems like it happened around the time of the first Halloween movie. Doesn't that t-shirt you have say Haddonfield 1974 or was it a different year? Haddonfield 1978. Okay. So on October 31st, Halloween 1974, Ronald O'Brien took his two children trick-or-treating in a Pasadena, Texas neighborhood. O'Brien's neighbor and his two children went with them. After visiting a home where no one answered the door, the children ran ahead to the next house, but Ronald O'Brien stayed behind. He eventually caught up with them and gave them five pixie sticks, which he said was given to him from the occupant of the house that hadn't answered the door. And at the end of the evening, O'Brien gave each of his neighbor's two children a pixie sticks and one each to his kids, Timothy and Elizabeth. Upon returning home, O'Brien gave the fifth pixie stick to another 10-year-old boy. Now before bed, Timothy, O'Brien's son, asked to eat some of his candy. And according to Ronald, he chose the pixie sticks. Timothy had trouble getting the powdered candy out of the straw so O'Brien helped him to loosen the powder. And after tasting the candy, Timothy complained that it tasted bitter. 
so O'Brien then gave his son some Kool-Aid to wash it down. Timothy immediately began to complain that his stomach hurt and ran to the bathroom where he began vomiting and convulsing. And O'Brien later claimed that he held Timothy while he was vomiting and then all of a sudden he went limp in his arms. Timothy died on the way to the hospital less than an hour after eating that candy. So Timothy's death from poisoned Halloween candy was terrifying to the whole community. Many parents in the area turned in candy their children got from trick-or-treating to the police because they were afraid it was laced with poison. Now, the police didn't suspect Ronald O'Brien until Timothy's autopsy revealed that the pixie sticks was laced with a fatal dose of potassium cyanide. Four of the five pixie sticks were recovered by authorities from the other children, none of whom, fortunately, had eaten the candy. And the parents of a fifth child were freaked out when they couldn't find the candy after being notified by the police. But they found their son asleep holding on to his unconsumed pixie stick. So that was a close one. Sure was. Fortunately, that boy had been unable to open the staples that had been used to seal the wrapper. So all five of the pixie sticks had been opened with the top two inches refilled with cyanide powder and resealed with a staple. According to a pathologist who tested them, the candy consumed by Timothy O'Brien contained enough cyanide to kill two adults, while the other four candies contained enough to kill three or even four adults. So O'Brien had told the police that he couldn't remember which house he got the pixie sticks from, but police became really suspicious because he and his neighbor had only taken their children to homes on two streets because it had been raining that night. So they got even more suspicious after learning that none of the homes they visited had even given out pixie sticks. So after walking the neighborhood with police three times, Ronald O'Brien led them to the house where no one had answered the door. He said the owner didn't turn the lights on, but did crack the door open and hand him five pixie sticks. He claimed to have only seen the man's arm, which he described as hairy. The house was owned by a man named Courtney Melvin, though, who was an air traffic controller, and he didn't get home from work that night until 11 p.m. So police ruled Melvin out as a suspect. He had over 200 people who could confirm his alibi. That's a pretty good alibi. Yes, pretty solid. Yeah. But what do you think about the story of an arm just reaching out? That's pretty pathetic. That is asking us a lot to sustain that one. Absolutely. And killed his own child, and it was apparently for money, for a life insurance policy. Yeah. So that's about the lowest of the low. Well, he got put to death. Yes, he did. Okay, one more email. Why don't you read this one? This is from Bree. She says, my name is Bree, and I'm from Anna, Texas. And I have a case recommendation, that of Christina Morris. She went missing in 2014 in Plano, Texas, after being recorded going into a busy parking garage with an old classmate, and she was never seen again. And without giving too much away, Enrique Aroki was sentenced to life with possibility of parole. He was also linked to another case I don't know much about involving a minor. Christina's boyfriend, Hunter Foster, had contact with Enrique the night of the disappearance, and he is a very suspicious character in the story. Hunter Foster later pled the fifth at Christina's trial but was granted immunity for his testimony. It's a really sad story, as many of my friends knew of her and was on the search teams. In 2018, so this is four years after, her body was discovered in Anna, Texas. There looks to be a book based on this case, but her family runs several Facebook pages if any background is needed. As for beer recommendations, 
Tup's Brewing is a pretty popular one here in Collin County, but there are too many breweries in the DFW area to count. Take your pick. <laughs> there are plenty. Yeah, great. Well, thanks, Bree. Now, I was looking at this case just, you know, quickly online, and I believe we saw it on one of those See No Evil shows that I like. Oh, cool. Where they show a lot of camera footage. Yeah. I remember the parking garage and the guy lying. You know, I just have a vague recollection of it. So, yeah, I will definitely look into that. That could be another good one. I did all right. I got some good cases. You got some good feedback. You and our listeners did very well. Yeah, I shouldn't take credit. I just picked some. (laughs) (laughs) You can take partial credit. We did okay. Yeah, so that's great. So thank you, everyone, for your input and everyone who supports the show and listens and leaves reviews. Everything you do is much appreciated. We really, really do appreciate it very much. Certainly do. Yeah. So until next time, we'll see you at the quiet end. Got some seats down here for you. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details with Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.